I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Srividya Sridharan. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director Amy Hayes to discuss the current state of business buying and how B2B firms can position themselves to succeed in today's buying landscape. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the the details of of this year's uh, survey, I think it would be helpful to just explain, like, how do we track B2B buyer behavior and how long have we been doing this for just so folks get a sense of, of where we're at today? Yeah, so we have been studying business buying behavior for the better part of 10 years and publishing various reports on the matter. It was only last year that we determined and we actually increased the number of respondents that we spoke with around the world. And we have made the decision to actually publish our findings on an annual basis. So we now have a set of reports that are either looking at a specific buyer persona or a region or an industry for a total of about 24 unique buyer insight reports that we are now publishing on an annual basis. And this year, uh, I'm so happy to resp- uh, to to report that we have over 18,000 respondents from around the world, and they are represented across North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific. And they really represent organizations uh, across a a wide variety of revenue bands. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, from 50 million all the way to 2 billion or more, because we really wanted to get a, a good understanding of how business buying behavior looks, depending on the size of the organization, depending on where they are in the world. And we also wanted to understand Uh, the differences between C-level buyers and professional-level buyers. So we uh, have a really good um, amount. I think it's about 36% of our respondents were C-suite officers um, or or the equivalent um, in our our respondent pool. So we have a great cross-section of business buyers around the world that we're looking at. This is amazing data. I mean, clearly the the reach and the depth of this um, data is huge. This year, especially, or I would say probably the last couple of years, it's it's been a challenge for B2B companies. You know, things are tough. Buyers are complex, getting even more complex. And, you know, one of the key findings in our state of business buying research was that financial constraints are really stretching and prolonging the buying process. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, what are we seeing there? You know, how is that becoming such an important factor in the in the buying process? Yeah, absolutely. This was probably one of the, the most significant insights that we gleaned from this year's data. And when you think about all of the different macroeconomic uh, factors that are at play, whether it is inflation, whether it is talent shortages, whether it is... Um, you know, other types of, of factors that are putting these new or additional forces on buyers to that affects the way that they buy. And so, for example, when um, when we asked what, if anything, stalled your purchase decision, 
89% of buyers indicated that they were stalled for one reason or another. And that is uh, that is higher than it has been in previous years. I believe last year it was about 83%. Um, so this is definitely something that that these macroeconomic forces are definitely having a role and having an impact on how buyers are, how quickly buyers are able to make their purchase decisions. And is there any indication of, you know, when they're going into a buying decision, like what are some of the early things that they're looking at part of that process? What the data shows is that the top two reasons for the stall in purchase decisions by business buyers is one, their budgets, and two, the price. So it's this gap between what buyers are able to pay and the price of the offering that vendors have to charge. It's this gap that's creating a significant uh, delay in terms of, of how those purchase decisions are being made. There are other factors, of course, that that are uh, that come into come into play when it comes to purchase stalls. Certainly, the effects of the pandemic um, are continuing to play a role. Um, the shift, um, the sort of macroeconomic or macro market shifts um, in specific markets are also having an impact. Um, so there's just a lot of different reasons, but the top two certainly is this gap between budgets and the price of the offering. That's what's causing the majority of the stalls that we see today. One of the really interesting things that you surfaced in last year's survey data was this sort of emerging, or I'm not sure if you would define it as emerging, but just the differences in generation, um, you know, buyers of different generations, I guess is a better way to say it. And so what those dynamics are, how does that show up in a buying process, the the length of those buying process, these reasons to, you know, why they're stalled in, in um, their buying processes. So just wondering, Amy, how did that show up this year? Any differences, any more, you know, acute um, nuances that, that you saw in the data, particularly how prevalent millennial and Gen Z buyers have become? Yes, this is such an interesting aspect of the data that, that we analyzed. And last year, uh, over 60% of buyers came from those younger generations, so from those millennials and Generation Z. And so we've reached this inflection point where that number is now just only going to increase. Um, they are gaining more influence, uh, more authority in, in the, the buying decision process, and they're just participating in more buying decisions than ever before. So that number increased from 64% last year to 71% this year. That 71, almost three quarters of business buyers are from these younger generations. And they have very distinct preferences and behaviors when you compare those to their older core, their older cohort, the, the Gen X and the baby boomers. Um, and so when you look at, for instance, the stall reasons that we talked about just a minute ago, there are significant differences in what stalls younger buyers and what stalls older buyers. And so where those the biggest gaps are is younger buyers are much more likely to be stalled due to major shifts in the marketplace. Uh, 
the effect of external influencers into the buying decision process and the effects of COVID-19. So that kind of plays into that first one of, of sort of the, the market forces that are at play. But what was the most surprising, I think, to us is their, their inability to build consensus within their own buying group to make a decision. And to us, this was an important insight in that younger buyers don't have the same level of experience that older buyers do to, in terms of removing barriers that might exist inside the organization to help them make those purchase decisions, whether it's a, you know, a financial negotiation, whether it's um, you know, different needs that different departments might have that you know, they're expecting from that particular purchase. So that, that consensus building is not just about which vendor that they want to choose, but it's about the overall purchase itself. Should we even move forward with buying this particular solution? Do we even think that we have a problem to solve? Like these are some of the fundamental challenges that younger buyers are facing in trying to influence and have a greater purchase authority um, in the buying groups that they participate in. Clearly, there's, uh, you know, there's, there are more younger buyers out there, but they are struggling to build that in, internal consensus. What should they be doing or what, what are the sources they should be uh, relying on to help them build consensus? Yes. Yeah, so what, what providers could be doing, what sales and marketing professionals could be doing to better support those younger buyers when they do face those kinds of challenges or, or obstacles is having readily made, readily created assets that help them build the case or make the case for a particular purchase and really understanding what are the questions that those other members of the buying group have that might not, that are not being addressed or that, that might not be, that are not getting answered adequately to make it a clear choice to move forward with this particular purchase or this particular vendor. So the more that we can get inside the minds of our buyers and not just our primary decision maker or our champion, but understanding the different roles that are in that buying group. So maybe it's a ratifier, maybe it's somebody from finance that is like, you know, really stepping in and saying that this is, you know, not you know, this is outside of our scope. This is not something that we want to prioritize for this year. What are ways in which we can better enable and understand what those questions are to get ahead of them and be able to have our, our buyer facing teams prepared with those kinds of responses so that our champion um, is able to help facilitate those conversations more effectively internally. So it really requires an understanding of, of, of the different people that are involved in that buying decision process. And they could be users of the product or of the offering that have an outsized influence on the purchase decision. It might be an influencer in another part of the organization that has stake that it could this purchase or this uh, technology implementation might have a significant impact on their operations. So they're going to maybe put up a roadblock. So it's really getting into the minds and, and understanding the questions of each of the individual uh, buyers that are part of that buying group, because we know that business purchases are very seldom made by individuals alone. They are made by groups of people. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about 
you know, how much influence does the vendor have in, in the buying process, right? We're sort of spitballing here, like, hey, make sure you understand the buying group and the roles within the buying group. But there's, you know, purchases don't happen in isolation. There are other sort of influences or sources of information that buyers can rely on. So we've talked about that, the importance of third-party information sources previously. So what's what's going on in, in that uh, arena and what's changed? Yeah, so when we looked at the, the information sources, so where buyers go, to get information to support them through their buying decision process, there is a new leading source of information that is the first time that's kind of reached the the top of the list. And those are the product experts from the providers themselves. This was a surprising insight for us that that was such an important, valuable, meaningful interaction type that buyers uh, expressed this year. And our hypothesis is that these product experts are able to help buyers effectively cut through the noise to find the information that is most specific to their unique circumstances or their unique problem. They're able to effectively connect what, how this, you know, how this offering addresses the specific needs that the buyer has. What are the outcomes that the buyer is trying to achieve, whether that is for their department, whether that's for their organization, it's really those product experts are able to make that translation more effectively than some of the other uh, information sources that, that we looked at. The second thing that we noted is buyers still prefer an, a near equal blend of personal interactions, so conversations with other humans, and self-guided or self-directed um, interactions where they are doing their own research. There is a, I think, um, a commonly held belief that buyers are doing um, more self-guided or self-directed research than they are talking with other people through the buying process, and our data is just not showing that. Now, you know, with that said, this information is is never sort of a blanket statement. This is information that needs to be paired with data that you have or data that that you know about your own buyers and to see how much of this these trends that we're seeing at a global level apply to your own set of buyers. Maybe it's not. Maybe you are seeing different combinations of information sources than we see when we're looking globally. But it's important to know you have to be looking at this kind of this kind of data um, within your organization to know how much you should be programming uh, the the campaigns that you're putting out into the world. How much of those should be self-guided? How much of those interaction points should be um, delivered through other people? And I think this is key because uh, to your point earlier, there is, you know, a lot of assumption in the growth of the self-guided interaction. And I think, uh, you know, this is a moment where we want to bust some of those assumptions as well. And the product expert piece is super interesting that we actually have a prediction on that as well, right, where we are talking about how, uh, you know, two out of five millennial buyers will will want access to these product e- product experts sooner, in the buying process. So, you know, clearly these two are some of the unique aspects of, you know, what we're seeing um, sounds like in the in the new research. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and kind of going along the lines of 
getting to the core of how a particular offering is going to solve a buyer problem, the second most prevalent or most meaningful interaction point were free trials. So not only are they looking for product experts to, to provide meaning about how this offering uh, solves a problem, but they wanna actually see it in action. They wanna experience it for themselves through something like a free trial. Um, and so those are two really insightful information sources that show that they, they are looking for really practical um, types of information um, in this year's uh, survey results. Now, rounding out the, the rest of sort of their top preferences, sales reps are absolutely important. So it's not, it's not that product experts and free trials have uh, replaced sales representatives. They are absolutely meaningful and will remain an important part of the buying decision process for buyers. Um, but we need to make sure that we are not only enabling our sellers, but that we are enabling these other people that are, you know, getting uh, involved in the buying decision process. So product experts, certainly, but also customer service and success representatives are also very, very valuable. And if you think about an existing customer, their doorway, their, their window into your organization are those customer service and success representatives. And when they are in a position to make another buying decision, maybe it's to renew their current offering, or maybe it's to you know, upsell to, you know, to a new offering on top of it. Um, those customer service and success reps are absolutely essential to create that experience for buyers when customers become buyers again. And so that's, they're so critical. And oftentimes that we see um, B2B organizations just oftentimes ignore get the customer service organization when it comes to enablement. And they absolutely need to be an important part of the enablement strategy for B2B organizations. So Amy, we talked previously about how younger buyers are struggling to you know build that consensus within the organization. That's kind of one of the stall reasons we know all buying scenarios are not, you know, created equal. Can you talk a little bit about what is that range of buying scenarios that um, we're seeing right now, and how does it influence buying behavior specifically as it pertains to content? Yeah, so um, we see buying complexity along a spectrum, and as as you as you know that business decisions, business purchase decisions, are not usually not made by an individual alone, they're made by teams of people, but not all teams act the same. There's a, there's a spectrum of complexity when you, when you look at the number of people that are involved, the number of departments that are involved, the price point, and the time frame in which those decisions are made. So we've created a pretty simple way to think about the complexity of these purchase decisions. So the, the least complex are independent purchases. And these are often made by one or two people um, across a department or two. And it's an agreement among these individuals that this is the right decision for us as an organization. These are typically on the lower end of the price range, less than $50,000. And they take maybe less than two months. Now, these, this is not set in stone, so this is a range. So things could be higher, things could be lower. 
Um, but it's just a way to start thinking about um, the complexity of your particular, uh, how your buyers buy your particular set of offerings. The next level of complexity are consensus buying scenarios. And these are buying decisions that are agreements across teams or different functions or departments in an organization. And so there's probably about three to five people involved across as many departments. So if you think about maybe it's a marketing automation platform and you have somebody from you know, certainly from marketing operations, you might have somebody from business operations, somebody from IT, maybe somebody from finance. So you have, when you go back to the, the, the roles that different buyers play in the buying group, this is where that becomes really, really important is what is the button that each of those individuals, you know, what are the, what are their care abouts? Those three to four, three to five different people, what do they care about? And it's going to be different because they're coming into that buying process with different needs and different expectations that we need to really tease out. And so these consensus decisions are typically one or two quarters, um, and they are 50,000 to, uh, to about a half million dollars. Um, so again, it's you know a little bit more considered purchase, higher stakes, you know, more exposure across more departments. And so the most complex um, are committee scenarios, and this is an agreement among the executive team. So this is a a critical, highly considered decision that oftentimes is part of a larger transformational effort that an organization is trying to undertake. Um, There could be six to 10, maybe even more people that are part of that buying decision across at least five or more different departments that have stake in that buying decision. So you can imagine that that the uh, amount of, um, of time and the price point is probably commensurate with that kind of complexity. So a half a million dollars or more, you know, a couple of quarters or more to make that particular purchase decision. So with that in mind, when we looked at what kind of assets resonated most with those three different buying scenarios, the, the five or six content assets that resonated the most were analyst reports, case studies, demos, executive reports, and presentations. And so you can see that those are a range of kind of long form content, interactive content, high level executive report type of content. So it really is a range, but it was only when we were able to look at all three of those buying scenarios that we could confidently say that yes, if we were to invest in these five or six different content assets for our buyers, we are very confident that these are the ones that are going to make the biggest impact. Rather than trying to create unique assets and content um, or just create a what we often see as a, a standard bill of goods or bill of materials, I should say, um, that are not reflected, um, that do not reflect buyer preferences. It's just sort of, this is what we always do for our campaigns. We have you know, this, 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 and this, no matter what kind of campaign that we have without understanding what the buyers are actually preferring. And I think what's gonna make probably the upcoming year more interesting is Gen AI and kind of the role that it would play in creating that content. So we'll be really curious to see how this pans out next year if some of these preferences hold up. 
That is such a fascinating question because not only is it from a content perspective, but we're really eager to see how buyers are going to be leveraging these Gen AI tools to help them make more efficient, faster purchase decisions. You know, when they're when you're querying, you know, these five, you know, these five vendors, you know, summarize their capabilities for me based on my needs. Like, I think it's going to have a, a, you know, a really big impact. And that's an area of research that we're looking at um, for 2024. So stay tuned for that. What I also love about these uh, reports is that they're for different roles, right? So like what you just were describing, Amy, was broadly, generally, these are some of the content preferences, but you can see it by whom you're targeting and what, you know, that may be very nuanced, depending if you are a security professional or an IT professional or what have you. So it's great to get that level of detail too. Um, Maybe we can get some insights specific to regional differences and and nuances. I I know that's always um, something we're interested in within marketing as as we, you know, go to market in, in different countries and regions. We could share some some stuff there. We looked at two different sets of factors, one that was more focused on the particular offering and then one that was focused more on the the provider and sort of the surrounding um, factors. So let me give you an example. So for the, the, the kind of technical focused reasons, those could be things about the expertise that the provider brings, the price of the offering. Um, the domain expertise that the company or the, the provider brings to the table. So those are those are just some of the um, some of the the sort of technical reasons why um, a buyer might select a particular one vendor over another. And when it comes to those technical reasons, buyers in North America and Europe found um, that price, um, and that price was primarily the, the main deciding factor um, for, for their purchase decisions. Whereas in, in Asia Pacific, domain expertise was really kind of the thing that they cared the most about and that they were making a decision partially based on the provider's ability to demonstrate its domain expertise in their particular area. So they want to know, you understand my region, you understand, um, you know, my market, you understand my buyers, um, and you understand sort of my my overall business. That was far more important to to buyers in Asia Pacific than that, than it was in North America. So then the other set of factors are things like cultural or organizational reasons that the provider was able to demonstrate. And so some examples of that might be the brand, you know, that the that the provider uh, carries, its reputation in the market, how well it understands the organization, how well it can transfer that knowledge or share uh, their knowledge and capabilities with the, the buyers. And so what we found here is that buyers in all parts of the world valued a vendor's brand and reputation above all else. That really was an important element to them that they they wanted assurance that uh, that they were doing business with an organization that said what you know that has a proven track record that that you know is a known element, a known quantity in their particular market. 
um, that they have examples of success stories that they're able to bring to the table. So those are things that that mattered for, for buyers globally. But in Asia Pacific in particular, dedication to diversity, equity, and inclusion programs was a really important element, an important factor for them, far more than in Europe and North America. And I think it's 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 a reflection of of just the some of those significant differences in in other parts of the world um, of how business is done. It's done differently. It's done um, perhaps more in a more consensus type of a scenario. It's um, but again, it's not one size fits all. <laughs> we have to look in the specific types of markets and the types of of buyers that we're looking at. Um, but that was that was a unique. Um, insight that we were also surprised by. So there's a lot that B2B companies have to take into consideration, right, when it comes to making sure that they're um, flexing their muscles based on the type of buyer and, you know, the type of market and all of that. There's so many factors that we covered today, right? Generational gaps, you know, financial constraints, some of the regional differences. What should they do to succeed in this very complex buying environment? Like, what are some few things that we can advise tangibly to these B2B companies on on what to what to focus on? So there are a few things we've talked about some of them, but I'll I'll, I'll repeat them again. Um, but one is don't just enable your sellers. Um, look at who is having. The, who, who's having those conversations or who is uh, supporting the buyer um, even asynchronously through, you know, digital programs, for instance, how are you enabling those people to have the best understanding of those buyers and how they buy, how, what their preferences and behaviors are? So, so it is, it is what we call revenue enabling, enabling that entire revenue engine um, to be able to support the buyer, not just focusing on sellers. That's sort of one, one takeaway. Another is consider making pricing information more transparent. I think we so often want to hold that information close to the vest, um, but we're seeing loudly and very clearly that buyers want that information. They want it probably earlier in the buying decision process than what we're giving that to them. And even for more considered products, we can put pricing information, um, you know, in front of the paywall. There, there's, there's, there are things that that we could look at. For instance, if this is an established market, if this is a particular problem that buyers have solved before, they're familiar with it, they've bought similar types of offerings. Those are great opportunities um, to provide more transparent pricing. So it doesn't always have to be, you know, smaller, um, you know, more transactional offerings. It can be more considered um, uh, relationship kind of driven offerings. The other is to when you think about the extended network of influencers. So this is really true for younger buyers um, in particular. Younger buyers value these external influencers, whether they are analysts, consultants, etc., um, equally as much as previous experience um, from the vendor themselves. And so this enabling and educating that extended network is really, really critical. So that's where really thinking about the reputation programs that are part of your overall campaigns, whether you're talking with an industry analyst, with reporters, other influencers in the market, it's absolutely essential that they 
know what your value proposition is, know what what your capabilities are so that they're able to convey accurate information to buyers when they are consulted or, or engaged. So that's kind of the, the other area. And then the final, um, I mentioned this also before, is this information that we're sharing, not just in our global report, but for the individual reports um, that we're publishing or that we, you know, that we have published, is to pair this with your own data, to compare this with what you know about your buyers, pulling it from your systems, from your Salesforce automation systems, your marketing automation systems, your content management systems, making friends with your ops counterparts to be able to get this insight in a way that is actionable and useful so that you can compare and contrast, but also pair it with with conversations that you should be having with your buyers every single day. So it's not just what we see um, from a, a quantitative perspective, but you need to also have that qualitative um, insight into your buyers by having conversations with them on a regular basis to make sure that you are staying abreast of their needs, their preferences, and their behaviors. And if you are a Forrester Decisions client, you can actually request a custom cut of the data based on the audiences that you're interested in. So we can look at specific um, offering categories. We could look at specific personas. Uh, maybe it's an organization size, an enterprise size that you're more interested in. Maybe even it's a geography. So there are many ways in which we could um, look at the data to get as close of an approximation to your target audience to get really close to, um, to those insights. So that's an incredible, um, I think, opportunity. And I just have one caveat that um, it's dependent on the sample. We have to have a, a sample of, of a minimum of 30. Um, so that's that's the, the, um, the caveat that we have there, the requirement. But it's a great opportunity to leverage this data in a more specific way for your business. So much information, Amy, so much useful information. Super excited that this is out and on a rolling basis. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.